Go ninja, go ninja, go, go ninja, go ninja, go, go ninja, go ninja, go, 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 go. Hello, welcome to Culture Dumps. I'm Ryan Lichten. I'm Parks Miller. Today we have a. This is a, a like a legend dump. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's it, it, it's definitely up there with like a Milli Vanilli or, I mean, it's definitely like even Beanie Babies. This is like a huge one today. This is a really big one, and I think in some ways people know the story very well, um, but it also, I don't know, again, maybe you don't know all of the great little details about it. I I feel like in some ways Vanilla Ice is one of the most famous subjects we've ever covered. He just seems super duper famous. Um, Also file it under as like a one-hit wonder. Um, Really like one song has kind of, created this huge massive career and rise and fall arc dump yeah and there's person. a lot of things i was really surprised about like i uh i don't hate him as much as no I no did. absolutely not um but quickly i want to do like a, just a little i just before we dive into vanilla ice uh i know you had a little bit of a you wanted to talk about baby jessica real quick yeah, um, actually, uh, our our friend of the show, Kaylin, uh, who was on our Thomas Kincaid episode, she brought this up to me, and I totally missed this. Uh, we talked about how the guy that pulled baby Jessica out of the well uh, ended up, you know, committing suicide and had kind of a rough go of it. But it uh, turns out that one of the res- uh, responding officers that first showed up to the well when 911 was called, his name was Andy Glasscock. Okay, first of all. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's the whole thing. Um Later, he was sentenced to 15 years of hard time for child sexual exploitation. <laughs> so, uh, don't know how that one slipped, how that glass cock slipped through our mm, fingers, yeah. but it did. And uh, just one more layer to that baby Jessica story, just right. like the, the spider web coming out of it of all these fucking crazy things is uh, that, yeah. pretty gnarly. That's kind of how like one of the members of Leonard Skinner who survived that plane crash that killed you know two or three founding members of the band was this huge tragedy one of the i think it was like the drummer of leonard skinnard who he survived the crash and then he uh was walking up to some farm to like ask for help and the farmer saw him like trespassing and was like back up and he shot him but then he was (laughs) later arrested for uh child abuse He's just like um, laying there shot after a plane. I like God. I could use a break today. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I could really, I could really um, use a, some mentos I think his or name something. Was, his name was Artemis Pyle, but yeah, he he kind of had a some pretty gnarly child abuse uh, convictions later in life. Jesus so, Christ! Not well, yeah, that, and you not know, that surviving like, a plane crash that doesn't make you a hero, you know. But no, it's pretty it makes gnarly. you lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, um, with this guy uh, Glasscock, you know, it's like who'd have thought that around that man, baby Jessica was actually safer in the well. Yeah. <laughs> like she, that was actually the best place for her to be when that guy showed up. Oh uh, man! Ap- apparently, um, I'm, God, that would, well. I'm just like wondering well. if, he, if he if he had like a fetish of like, okay, so I want you to like get into a really tiny container, yeah, and, and um, then I'll have someone else come and pull you out, and that's what I like. Um, 
I also had a, a slight correction. This is from a couple back. This is the Sinead O'Connor episode. I was too jazzed, and uh, I believe I um, wrongly attributed the Manic Monday to the Pretenders, uh, but it was the Bengals. Ah. And uh, and Mike Stasny, who's been on the show and is a fan, he pointed that out. So thank you, Mike, for calling me on that. Um, yeah, also, apparently, you don't uh, pronounce the Y at all in Ypsilanti. Uh, I heard that one from someone. So, oh, <laughs> so there okay. you go. All right. Um, Mistakes will be but forgiven. We, but we did get Hawaii very correct. Uh, yeah. so, <laughs> yes, brother. Um, so I that now I just had two random uh, sort of Woodstock 99-esque uh, connections here of some, some movies. Uh, the first one is I've been for some reason kind of revisiting like James Bond movies and uh, <laughs> that's odd. So Dr. Evil is like based off of the villain Blofeld in the original James, like in the sixties, there was this bald villain who had like a huge layer in this huge criminal network and he stroked a cat and he kind of had these eccentricities that uh, Dr. Evil is based off of. Uh, so the connection there is obviously very thin. It's uh, Austin Powers 2 and Elvis Costello playing at Woodstock 99, but obviously Vern Troyer as well um, yeah. was in Austin Powers and made a brief appearance at Woodstock 99. The thing is, the guy who played Blofeld was Donald Pleasance, who also played the deranged Doc character in Wake and Fright. Which again oh, is a movie wow. that we've talked about many times, and that our old producer Gray turned us onto, and kind of warped our brains with Wake and Fright one winter, where we couldn't get over how <laughs> crazy that, <laughs> that movie was is. So depraved, dude. That uh, was that was, uh, so, the, that was like our own winter of discontent. Anytime we can bring up Wake and Fright, um, and he's he's great as Blofeld. The other very very random Woodstock '99 leap here and Culture Dump leap is discovering this movie Two Moon Junction. Uh, which would also kind of file under erotic thriller, which was an episode we did on our Patreon where we kind of riff a little more and we talked about all the sort of erotic thriller boom of the late 80s and early 90s. Now, Two Moon Junction, I was I was just like, what's up with this movie? I see that because it takes place in a carnival, uh, we've got our man Hervé in it. And it was actually Hervé's last role. Um, and he plays... I mean, basically, I guess like a carnival midget or a short person probably <laughs> used. They probably said midget in the movie, given that he was like a I'd carny, money on that uh, sideshow character. Uh, but also there is this scene where there is this shirtless like tilt a whirl operator. And I was like, holy shit. The movie Joe Dirt actually references it. Uh, like exactly you, like, like shot for shot shot for shot same song and i was like wow i can't believe that joe dirt referenced this like really random erotic thriller and the uh connection there is that kid rock was in joe dirt and he also performed at woodstock 99 wow dude you're like <laughs> so, the fucking alex jones of fucking culture dump right oh, now like, you're like two moon junction. because in two moon junction <laughs> like, yeah and uh, they're making the frogs game. Um, anyways, yeah. so now I think uh, I think that's that's, <laughs> that's everything. It. Also, yeah. you know, speaking of uh, of all that, do sign up to our Patreon, patreon.com slash culture dumps. Uh, I'm about to put up a set commentary to uh, one of George Clinton's sets at Woodstock '99, the one with Louis Kabibi and Booty. Hey! 
uh, diaper man, Gary. It's uh, love it. It's a, it's a good one. It was a very rowdy evening last night, but alas, here we are. We're talking about Vanilla Ice today. Why is Vanilla Ice a dump? Well, Vanilla Ice is a dump that spans the ages, from his debut as the first white boy rapper, not to be confused with the first white rapper, to his ill-fated musical comeback, and finally, his chaotic career in reality TV, Vanilla Ice is a multi-tiered dump that for many reasons has been a long time coming. The saga of Vanilla Ice is one peppered with cliches such as flying too close to the sun, being too big for one's britches, and not knowing what you got till it's gone. All in all, this story can be summed up with the phrase, Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Gone. And I, <laughs> oh, oh, the God. And, wow, profound. <laughs> and I just want to thank uh, research assistant Mel for, for giving us uh, tons of pages of notes on this. And also shout outs always to the God VH1 Behind the Music. This is uh, a very classic episode of yes, Behind the Music. Yes, it is. It does feel like one of those... Um, where it's, I just felt like the whole Vanilla Ice story is it was kept alive for so long, and it's probably again because of these shows like VH1, and very much it is it, he's such a one-hit wonder, and it was kind of there was also this era in rap which we'll get into more where rap sort of this is this is pre-gangsta rap, so it was still like rap was still like very much like party music, um, and now when you look back to this era, I mean this is kind of this moment where rap was breaking into the mainstream, but in a lot of ways, you know, the, the gangster rap um, era, just like rap hadn't fully kind of developed into itself and its identity. Um, so it's, it kind of seems really silly. And I mean, it was silly. It was fun. It was carefree. And obviously it's all about you have, dancing. Yeah. It was about dancing. I mean, like break dancing was such a huge part of it. We'll get into that later too. Uh, and, you know, kind of like being like super hard, like being tough, hadn't, really quite come into the picture i mean there the, was like, a lot of majority of like i mean we'll talk about it but i mean there was ice tea and fucking public enemy there was harder rap out there but like what happens is i always relate it to like what happened to hair metal like when grunge hit like the fun rap goes away once like the fucking chronic comes out like right. then it's like okay new new era you know and so mm -hmm. many artists were like lost in that storm of uh, vanilla ice being one of them but not just for that reason, for a plethora of other reasons. Right. He also kind of did, on first glance, kind of, you know, he was he was incredibly young. He got super successful really quick, and it kind of seemed like really easy to hate on him. Um, and then there's also this kind of like racial element. Like hip hop is definitely seen as like kind of one of these truly like Black American forms of music um and it has predominantly been that way in terms of who's driving the trends uh and the movement itself so obviously you've got this like super super white boy and his name is vanilla ice um yeah he's kind of like <laughs> taking a he's got a huge hit uh and so that you know that's that's part of it and that's kind of why he feels a... so one hit wonder dump about it but he's got a very interesting life <laughs> totally. I mean, and there's also this this aspect of like he had to work so hard to get the respect in the underground and he became like the biggest star ever only to be hated by like the masses. Like right, right. like he was he actually has a lot of cred in the rap world. Um like I believe even like Nipsey Hussle like shouted him out. Yeah. Like, there's been tons of rappers that are like no, like he's pretty sick, like but it is what it is. But 
Let's start here. The dawn of the Ice Age. Our story begins in Dallas, Texas on Halloween night, 1967. Robert Matthew Van Winkle was born to piano teacher Camilla Beth Dickerson on October 31st, 1967. Van Winkle never knew his biological... God, that name, dude. It's going to get really hard to not laugh every time. Van Winkle never knew his biological father. His last name came from the man who his mother was married to at the time of his birth. After his parents divorced when he was four years old, Van Winkle's mother split the family's time between Dallas and Florida's Dade County, where his mother met and married Chevrolet dealership owner Byron Mino. Uh, Dade County, that's a throwback to Anita Bryant. Um, and uh, worth noting, he had a half-brother, older half-brother. Um, and All that's from also, a d- different yeah. marriage. He, he mentions that in the behind the music. He's like, you know, I had I had it rough. I had, you know, like my mom had three kids all from different marriages or different guys, blah, blah, blah. Um, but again, this is going to be a multi-parter, guys. So fucking buckle up because we got, we got a lot of vanilla, vanilla ice for your cone here. So at the dawn of the 1980s, when Rob was 13 years old, he caught wind of a new cultural movement sweeping the nation. Hip hop. Growing up in a particularly diverse neighborhood and neighborhoods, Rob was exposed to a cornucopia of culture and, thanks to the 1984 film Breakin', became fascinated with breakdancing. The teenage Rob would stay up all night mimicking every dance move in the film. Breakdancing would ultimately become Van Winkle's gateway into the world of hip-hop, a world that at the time was almost exclusively reserved for the black community. It's kind of like how Kid Rock started in a crew, but he was just the DJ because he wasn't, they didn't want him fronting a group because he was the white guy in, like, you know, in, a, in the black scene. Um, right. And, you know, Vanilla Ice, he would like prove himself by, you know, the, the dancing was the big big thing uh, also he was a high school dropout never finished high school he, he only made it to 10th grade and he was very interested and has a lifelong fascination with motocross car racing um lots of bro stuff <laughs> lots mm-hmm. of like yeah. lots of dude shit uh in vanilla ice's life have you seen this movie breaking yeah you've seen it yeah like oh, a long damn. time ago yeah i haven't seen it but i know that ice tea is is in it um, no, there's all kinds of like amazing yeah. people in it, and like like that's where like the brute dancing with like the broom when the broom mm-hmm. stands up on its own, like that's where that comes from. It was it was iconic for sure. And then there's breaking to the electric boogaloo, right? Uh, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is awesome. Now having honed his break dancing skills while recovering from a motocross accident, not quite sure how that works. Like, did you just break like a finger? Like, how can you practice break dancing when recovering from a motorcycle accident? But that's what was reported. <laughs> so. While he was recovering, the young Van Winkle and his pop lock and cronies formed a posse that began to perform. And by perform, what I really mean is a hip-hop version of busking. It was during these early years that Van Winkle dubbed, was dubbed Vanilla by his crew. His friends were all black, and they coined the name Vanilla for him. And Rob hated the name, but he couldn't escape it, so he just rolled with it because it helped mm-hmm. him not only to stand out, but also kept him one step ahead naysayers and haters. It's like the classic yeah. Eminem thing, like, I'll make fun of myself for being white trash, so now you can't do it. Yeah. It's like... Um... And I guess that's part of, you know, because you, you, you can say vanilla as kind of a pejorative. Like, you're like, oh, you're into vanilla sex. You only do missionary position or vanilla is the the most, you know, not it's freaky. The, it's, the most, it's the most popular ice cream. So it's like you're not adventurous. You're a vanilla. And so it's kind of. Um, but honestly, the name is a really it's a great name. It's just got this association, but like the name vanilla, it sounds really nice to say, you know what I mean? Also, it's like, why don't you just call yourself like, like you could just be like, yo, like I'm the white guy. 
<laughs> like that's like yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't. You gotta you gotta take a little bit of. Uh... Yeah, I'm white guy. That's yeah. it. Now, while busking, Vanilla and his crew made an average of $40 a day dancing outside of local shopping malls. Many times, they would perform in more upscale neighborhoods, and it was Vanilla's presence that most likely kept his crew from being immediately kicked off the property. It, you know, the idea of Vanilla Ice being white, therefore softening the image of hip-hop for white folks, that's going to be a running theme throughout the whole story, from his busking days all the way up to being a mainstream superstar, where it's just like, oh, well... You know, they got a white guy, so let's leave the kids alone. Like, as mm -hmm. opposed to, like, a group of black kids outside of these upscale malls where it's like, get them out of here, you know? It's, it's yeah. this weird thing. He's like their get-out-of-jail-free card almost. E even, yeah, I mean, even before, you know, gangster rap, like, it still, you know, was seen as this, like, su it was a super urban, largely black, you know, movement, playing loud music. You know, it's kind of, it, it, it's always had that agitation of, like, Dang, like they're just playing loud music outside. Yeah. Like it's it's a real it's a real nuisance. You know? Yeah, it's a real nuisance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, during their public performances, Vanilla and his crew brought a large boombox to play their music. Connected to the boombox was a microphone, which they would use to hype up the crowd and introduce each other. And it was with this microphone that Vanilla would begin his rapping career. He quickly learned that not only could he dance, but he could also freestyle rap. And his name went from Vanilla to MC Vanilla. But because of his signature dance move, The Ice, his name finally evolved to Vanilla Ice. Mm -hmm. Dude, The Ice. Like, that's the like ice. Zoolander shit. Like, mm -hmm. like Cobalt or whatever. Like, his, his special look. Oh, Blue Steel. Yeah, Blue I Steel. I like Cobalt. Like, <laughs> I don't know. You've been looking <laughs> at paint swatches? <laughs> it's been a um, while. Yeah, I also... Uh, vanilla Ice... Yeah, it's a pretty cool name, you know. It's dope, dude. And uh, I also like <laughs> let's just get this out. Uh Vanilla Ice was incredibly handsome. I mean, that guy, he looks like a fucking action figure. Like yeah, his face, he does. you could you could slice cheese with his jawbones. It's crazy. Yes, he is it he is extremely photogenic. Like, like model. Like no I one... feel like he could be he could have been a model if he wasn't. Yeah, oh, and he did model. I mean, but once he was big, but yeah, I mean, it's he looks fake. He looks like Max Headroom, kind of like with his hair. Yes, and shit. especially with the hair. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he's got a he's got a, a jawbone for days. One of them, baby. One of them sexy jawbones. Yeah, that mm -hmm. Van Winkle face. Now, <laughs> <laughs> the Vanilla Ice story can be separated into three parts. There's Rob Van Winkle, Vanilla Ice, and then back to Rob Van Winkle. The Vanilla Ice portion begins at a battle worn nightclub in Dallas, Texas, that was known as City Lights. The City Lights nightclub began as a segregated movie theater called the Forest Theater in post-war Dallas. The movie theater then became a jazz and blues club that hosted artists such as B.B. King, Wilson Pickett, and many other legendary acts. So it's, the, there's, it's got the energy, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, it, of course, it's history begins in segregation, but it's always been like a black club. Uh, for, yes. You know, for all of that kind of blues and then R&B, and then it's going to go, you know, and then it becomes hip hop. So towards the late 1980s, the club came under the ownership of one Tommy Kwan, who transformed the City Lights Club into a Texas headquarters for hip hop. The club hosted weekend long parties that boasted the freshest acts the growing hip hop movement had to offer. In the 1980s, the idea that hip-hop could flourish in the southern states was laughable. But thanks to people like Quan and the radio show The Hardy Deaf Party on KNON-FM, that began to change. This is like the glam era of hip-hop. Mm -hmm. Like I said, like a hair metal. You know, they're wearing super flashy clothes. They have crews like, Grandma like Grandmaster Flash, The Furious Five. Like, they're all decked out like... 
like super glammy. I mean, it's like it's like David Bowie mixed with hip hop. At this yeah, time. there's even there's sort of a a disco kind of thing, or like be you know having that. You know, we were talking about the the like Michael Jackson. Like, you can't dress like Michael Jackson. Yeah, but um, they all did. But they were, yeah. It was like you know, like wearing like lots of leather and kind of having that like electro '80s vibe to it. I mean, that would be a famous point of contention with NWA when that group started breaking up and everyone was beefing with each other. Uh, I think it was Easy E who like yeah. found pictures of Dr. Dre from this era. And you know he's where he's wearing. I think like he has some makeup, and well, so yeah, he he's wearing a purple silk like scrubs because he's Dr. Dre with like a mm -hmm. fucking surgical mask and everything. But it's like purple, and it's like Dr. Dre. Like it, it, you got to watch the Defiant ones. Uh, they, yeah. they go into all that, and like Dr. Dre is being interviewed about that era, and they're showing like clips and stuff, and like he's laughing. He's like, "But we were sick, you know." And like, all, like yeah, because that was also it was a band. Like they yeah, the had musicians, world. and there was a guy in his group, and Dr. Dre's like glam pre NWA mm -hmm. group that played the guitar, but he didn't actually play it. They just liked mm -hmm. the guy, so they had him hold it and just like fake it. <laughs> like, but yeah. that was his job. He had, you know, he yeah. I think it was the world class wrecking crew. Yes, and yeah, yeah. you. I'm looking at a picture. It's like he's just he's wearing like tight clothes. Like it's way more of like a disco thing. And then you look and you see like the Chronic album cover. He's got the cap. He's looking hard. He's looking real fucking serious. Uh, but yeah, even with Dr. Dre, you can kind of see that there's just like a completely different uh, environment like that. It, it was it was a party. It was a party. But what I'll say, though, about that era, even though it's all glitz and glam and like bright colors and all that, it was still riddled with violence and gangs and all that stuff like mm -hmm. that stuff never like that didn't show up when gangster rap did. That was always ingrained in hip hop like this, like, cause it's rough city guys, you know? So there's mm -hmm. always going to be that thing, but you know, DJs were generally safe. Like you never fucked with the DJ, like at these, at these like rumbles that they would have. Um, so either way, like despite the fact that it's very cheery and everyone's dancing and wearing makeup and stuff, it was still a rough, rough scene. Absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, and being born out of, you know, New York City in the late 70s, early 80s. That's a famous time when New York City was like a very kind of unsafe sort of grindy Oh, no, oh Hell's place, Kitchen you know? in the 70s, though? Yeah, you know, yeah. like the whole taxi driver, hardcore punk, all that all that stuff. So it, it came out of that uh, environment. Right. Know? Now, City Lights was a notoriously rough spot, the kind of place a young man would pace around outside of for hours before mustering up the courage to enter for the first time. For the newly christened Vanilla Ice, it was a rite of passage and a chance to prove himself as a serious player in the Dallas hip-hop scene. Again, mostly for breakdancing. Like, the rapping mm -hmm. was second. That was more of just a way to, like, introduce each other, but they would keep having him do it. Yeah. Now, it is worth noting that in the Dallas scene, as with most hip-hop scenes, skills were not the only thing one needed to rise above the rest. Street cred was equally important. Despite his soon-to-come squeaky-clean persona, Vanilla Ice had definitely earned his stripes on the street, especially after a near-fatal altercation in 1987, during which he was stabbed five times. And this, mm -hmm. was, this has been reported two ways. The way he... Like, Vanilla Ice is so interesting because, like, he spent so much of his life trying to, like, defend himself that he, he like, made up little tiny lies or, like, things got like mixed up in the translation yes. and then and then later once he accepts himself he tells the truth so it's hard to lock down the facts with a lot and, of the stuff and, yeah, and that's good to bring up that that was because reviewing a lot of these interviews that was 
part of it was him being white and that kind of seemed to go against you know that that was offensive in a way in terms of the culture and then also they were once he got so popular uh, a lot of his stories kind of came under scrutiny in it so then his credibility there were these little um aberrations in terms of like you didn't say that you know he said it one way this time and yeah. another way this time so then it seemed like his credibility was at uh risk and yeah that's a huge part of that's been a huge part of hip-hop as well which is interesting in a way that other styles of music don't really have but just kind of really blurring I would the say line like between punk like, are you is like the only other like no one says like oh you're not pop enough to be a pop mm -hmm. star but like punk has that rap definitely has that you're um, right punk definitely it's kind of like if you're dressing one way and then going home to like a nice you know yeah house if you're, if you're calling yourself vanilla ice but really you're rob van winkle you know mm -hmm. like <laughs> but you know that, what's that, funny is and rob van winkle is a funny name but there's a lot of a lot of rappers that you know, that's kind of the whole, whole thing. Like, I mean, for me, like the, uh, like Snoop Dogg being Calvin right. Brodus is like, that's not, you know, how that's not a rap name or it's, you know, uh, young thug is named like Jeffrey Williams, you know? <laughs> um, well, John Wayne's real name was Marion, you know? So what are you, you going to do with that? But one, one story, uh, is that he was in a brawl outside of the city lights club and, um, he, a guy, uh, he had a guy in a headlock, and the guy pulled a knife out and just started stabbing him in the leg, and his ass until he like let him go. Um, and the other Oof. story is that he went into a relatively safe neighborhood. Uh, it was called Richardson in Texas, and it was in order to exact revenge on another crew who had jumped his friend, and then he ended up getting stabbed. Um, he was also known to jump in like straight into the middle of fights without any hesitation. Like he was a he was a. A scrapper for sure now and and we'll probably get to this later uh once he's gotten super famous and the credibility but there is like a video of him when once he's really famous and kind of his stabbing story comes under scrutiny and but he shows so it he, he he like pull he, he like pulls up his shirt he's like this he shows the scars uh yeah so Jesus, God. Yeah. Now, it was during one fateful night at City Lights when Vanilla Ice, fueled by a cocktail known as the Runny Nose, entered a talent contest on a dare. I'm going to call bullshit that the Runny Nose is a cocktail. That sounds like a fucking code for something mm -hmm. else that would get you hyped yeah. up enough to go break dance on stage. <laughs> yeah. Like, exactly. oh, no, it was a cocktail. The Runny Nose. You know what mm. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, that does not sound like an actual drink. That sounds like cocaine. Now, Ice was nervous, not only because he was the only white guy in the club, but also because he was still too young to legally be in the building. According to Vanilla Ice, the crowd fell silent as he walked onto the stage. Armed with a short set of rhymes, sufficient beatboxing skills, and ice-cold dance moves, he had what could be called the very first eight-mile moment, and instantly won the crowd over. He knew he had arrived when the go-white-boy cheers overpowered the sound system. Like, this is seriously, like... Like the way it was described by the this club like DJ, a, a guy yeah. named DJ Earthquake, was like you could hear a pin drop. Like everyone mm -hmm. stops, like what's he doing on the stage? Like what the fuck? Like mm -hmm. totally, you know. I mean, it's just the moment, and then starts like start like he he, he even had names <laughs> for some of the sound effects he could do. He's like, I started hitting him with like the, the chili bowl, and then I hit him with the like, but like that, that's just an example. But, <laughs> but and, like they're like, oh shit, he could do that. Like yeah, and then go white boy. I mean, that's gonna be that's kind of the uh, backbone of the story is this moment where it's just like, oh no, like 
he he gets the pass, I guess. Um, not right. the pass, if you know what I'm saying. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now the crowd's reaction was split between surprise and respect. Half the crowd was laughing at the fact that a white guy could rap and dance so well, just like di- like just in disbelief. And the other half respected his skills for what they were, rather from who they were coming from. So you know, you had people like just like holy fuck, like this. That would probably be my reaction. Like holy fuck, this guy's like insane. And then you had other people going like, I don't care who this guy is he's got what it takes now the night of his debut ice was bombarded by a and r reps in the audience and was approached by city lights manager john bush who became ice's road manager bush introduced ice to city lights owner tommy kwan who had recently founded a music management agency called ultrax kwan signed vanilla ice and the ice age began kwan is actually a fascinating figure uh he's you know I believe the son of, of immigrants and grew up in the South, but loved hip hop, started this legendary club, discovered vanilla ice. Like, and he's just like this right. unassuming, like Asian guy, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, his website, what, by the way, looks like it's maintained by him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like an old school website. Yeah. Like I could probably get, I'm going to try and get him on. Cause like, I feel like judging by his website, I'm like, we could probably get this guy. Yeah, yeah, we should get. Uh, oh, yeah, it's got the uh, the clip art. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. You know, the little clip art CD yeah, with the microphone. Tracks, man. So still going strong. Now a fully bona fide cornerstone of the City Light stable of talent, Vanilla Ice was performing regularly with his Vanilla Ice posse. Ice was booked as the opening acts for legends such as NWA, Public Enemy, Tone Loke, Two Live Crew, Ice T, Paula Abdul, Sinbad, and most importantly and least surprising, MC Hammer. Dude, Vanilla Ice on the bill with NWA. Like that, right? That is yeah. some fucking crazy shit. But the way yeah. Vanilla Ice describes it is, he always says, "I was the opener for the opener for the opener." Like, right, right. <laughs> but if you've been to like any local like hip hop shows at nightclubs, usually, I mean, nowadays they're usually pay to play, and there's like seventeen acts. Yes, exactly. I mean, I've worked a bunch of these shows, and it could be, yeah, literally anywhere from seven to twelve rappers on a bill because also what happens is when you have that opening opening slot your set could be five to ten minutes like yeah you do like you might song. play you play like yeah two or three songs and then you're out um yeah i so booked um, like- i booked some rappers uh at, a, at a, the strip club i used to arrange talent for and um one of you know one group like the group who was headlining they like had it down they had a full set and i remember they had like three of their friends opening and I was like, oh, yeah, so, like, 20, 25 minutes, like, oh, what? Like, they were all ready just to do one song. And, like, they had their, mm, like, mm-hmm. beat on an iPod. Right, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're like, oh, fuck. Like, I don't even have anything else. I was like, why would you show up to play one fucking song? Yeah, but, and that's that's also an interesting phenomenon of just, like, the not, don't even have a DJ thing. Like, I remember working at venues when uh, it was still like a practice to just hand the sound guy a CD and be like, okay, when you see me walk on stage, just press like play track one and right. then, and then it'll just go. And that's and just let like, me do wild. my thing and then step aside. <laughs> it just feels wild to like, to like being a feeling like a control freak of like, what if something goes wrong? You know, like, you know, you don't even have like, I guess nowadays, what you if it have Millie your, Vanilli's? you have your laptop on stage or whatever, you know, yeah. but, 
it's just like I guess you wouldn't be bringing your Walkman on stage. Yeah. So you're just, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, either way, he's opening for all these amazing people. Vanilla Ice and Two Live Crew in the fucking '80s sounds like one of the best times ever. Yeah. Um, also, wouldn't mind seeing Sinbad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or MC Hammer. I mean, and we're gonna talk about him more later because he is. They're so similar. Well, uh, there's reasons for that. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll get to that. Yeah. But um, during this time where he's like, making his rounds opening for all these acts at the club, Ice-T was actually one of the first famous person to be like, you're going to make it, dude. Like, I can't believe how good you are. And even Chuck mm -hmm. D, and this is really interesting because Public Enemy, uh, not the biggest fans of, like, you know, white folks coming in and taking over culture. Uh, but Chuck D fucking loved Vanilla Ice and even attempted to get him signed. And we'll talk more about that later. But he was a huge uh, advocate for Vanilla Ice. Um, mm -hmm. But MC Hammer was the most impressed as their styles were the most similar. And they both were big on dancing. And so like they would yes. have synchronized dance moves and stuff with like backup dancers on stage. Not a lot of rappers were doing that. And they were doing it almost exactly the same just by happenstance. Mm -hmm. Now, the next step for Vanilla Ice was to release original music. Despite his local popularity, it was difficult to find someone to produce songs for him. DJ Earthquake, the house DJ at City Lights, was approached by Tommy Kwong to do just that. Earthquake asked MC Smooth, a.k.a. Mario Johnson, if he would help him write songs for Vanilla Ice. Johnson was fiercely opposed to the idea, so Earthquake took on the task by himself. Utilizing new production technology, specifically sampling technology such as the Akai MPC, he patched together the very first Vanilla Ice song. The first Vanilla Ice single, Play That Funky Music, was released on Ichiban Records in 1989. The B-side to the single was a song titled Ice Ice Baby. Play That Funky Music was an upbeat, danceable track that sampled the Wild Cherry song, Play That Funky Music. The, if I say it one more fucking time, the song was chosen in order to play off the Play that funky music, white boy uh, chorus. You just did it. You did it. I know, um, but at least yeah. I got to add in the white boy. But it's, uh, this song is actually pretty sick. And when you watch like the behind the music and you see early footage of him playing this, first of all, the kids got moves, bro. But the kid uh, can he's rock. like, play oh, that wait, funky wrong. music, vanilla yeah. ice, and the whole fucking <laughs> crowd like shits their pants. And then he starts mm. like, and, and he's not dressed up all crazy yet. Like he was dressed more like your Dallas and Miami like street wear stuff you mm -hmm. know it, it didn't become the fucking like hammer pants stuff uh, until later so it is like objectionably cool like you know uh, but unfortunately for all involved the song did not have the initial impact vanilla ice and company hoped for while vanilla ice was not the first white rapper he was definitely the first white boy rapper yes. and the song and vanilla ice as a whole was seen as a novelty above all else now we're going to break that down uh, in, mm -hmm. in a second, but this was actually the second song using that sample. Uh, another rap duo that was white was <laughs> called BMOC. And they released a little known track that was actually produced by Nile Rodgers that sampled Play That Funky Music the year before this. Yeah. Um, sampling, again, sampling, this is, this is not only is hip hop this new i mean i guess by the late 80s hip-hop had been around for about 10 years but sampling still was very 
it was such a new thing. So you, you did see more moments of just like taking really, really big, obvious samples. I mean, and also that's also happened. I mean, Puff Daddy did it so many times in the late nineties. Oh yeah. And some, and sometimes it still happens. Like, what is that guy? Um, speaking of white boy rappers, young gravy, like that oh. guy <laughs> is popular now and he very much feels like Vanilla Ice vibes, but yeah. with trap music. And he just did like he basically did like a Rick Astley, like a Rick roll. Right. He just did the, like right. Never Gonna Give You Up, and it's pretty much the same. Someone, what's melody, that rap song exactly. where someone sampled the Austin Powers theme? Have you heard oh, that one? Uh, Ludacris, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> great. Yeah, um, but let's let's talk about this really quick. So, white boy rapper versus a white rapper. Okay. Um, I'll say like, uh, well, this is interesting because they had feud like Machine Gun Kelly, white boy rapper, Eminem, white rapper, mm -hmm. uh, Beastie Boys, white rappers. Um, like I would even say like, like Mac Miller is, is more of a white rapper, but Macklemore would be a white boy rapper. Like, yeah, it's, it's kind of, there's something about it's being, it's about, all about being natural. I feel like, like it coming yeah. off naturally, like being naturally cool, not trying to fit in like, you know, like the beastie boys are to me, like the number one example of this. Cause they've just always done their own thing and are never even considered like, no one even brings it up like, Oh yeah. And then like, they were like the first like white rappers, like barely anyone brings that up when they mm -hmm. talk about the beastie boys because their influence was so strong with vanilla ice. That's the first thing people say. I guess, yeah. I mean, this is, there really is a lot uh, to dig into here. I think, again, you know, hip hop and rap, it, it's, it was such a like predominantly like black culture movement. And so someone like the Beastie Boys, they really quickly found a way to kind of be really, I guess, natural. And sort of like, I mean, that first License to Ill, I mean, some of those songs, some of those big hits are like basically rock songs with right. rap yeah. drums. And they really acknowledge like, yeah, we're just like some goofy suburban white dudes. We are not trying to sort of like act like something we're not. We're not trying to pretend we're from the street. And I think that's when it kind of becomes the like the other side when it's like, all right, dude, this white boy is trying so hard. It's also just to the like, style too, you know, and like his... the dancing and like, you know, he, but again, it, it's, it's the, it's the music itself that gives him the white boy rapper title. In my opinion, it's not him. Cause he, he fucking has the street cred, you know what I mean? And he was yeah. like really well respected within, within the scene. There, Cause then, but that's the thing is there's street cred, but then, and that is where you're from or whatever, but then there's still just, getting respect from sort of the greater yeah. hip hop community. That's something that Vanilla Ice sort of in a lot of ways really struggled and never had. And obviously someone like Eminem, he's got, he's being backed by Dr. Dre. Uh, he's got yeah. you know, like, he's, he's on. Yeah. Songs being backed Snoop by Dogg. Dr. Dre is a lot different than being backed by MC Hammer. <laughs> right. Exactly. So Eminem is kind of always seen as, you know, having the credibility uh, and then Vanilla Ice, and we'll get into this, you know, more or whatever, but it's like, it's some people would even say it's kind of like, is this like a parody of hip hop culture? Or is this somehow cheapening hip hop culture because it seems so goofy or it seems like it's trying too hard? And in reality, like that was, that was how he was brought up and that's what he yeah. knew. Um, but it's also, yeah, it also go, especially in the U S like it's a kind of story that I guess doesn't, 
you don't necessarily it's not as popular of a narrative to have like oh wow this white guy against all odds you know yeah. <laughs> uh, try Dude, no um, okay wait we talked about the, that <laughs> but at the that, same time that's the that's funniest totally part about thing. the behind the music because like it's like and, and even with his skin color holding him back yeah. like <laughs> right but but i will say that is I think that's what kind of also makes the white boy, like even the song play that funky music white boy, the whole concept of it is that this is like black people are funky and we have rhythm and the white people don't. So the one white boy who's got, he's got rhythm, he's got funk and soul. That's the white boy. Like that's kind of using it in the best way possible of being like, wow, (laughs) like, like with kid rock, like, wow, that kid can rock, you know, like it's like, Oh shit! The white boy has showed up, and he's he's like earning his stripes to be here. Um, yeah, but then it yeah. can just as quickly be like, like white boy, like, hey man, like if you say it threateningly, it's like you better know your place, white boy. Like in uh, it, what's that Lou Reed song? Like he's like, hey white boy, what you doing uptown? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's like threatening. It's like you shouldn't be here. Yeah. yeah. Now the history of the song "Ice Ice Baby" is cloudy. Every party involved has a different version of what happened. DJ Earthquake claims he made the beat and wrote the hook as a demo, which he never completed. Then behind his back, Quan brought it to another producer to finish it and then released it without Earthquake's knowledge. Vanilla Ice claims that he had written all the lyrics and the hook himself, and it was all about a wild night out he had in Miami when he was 16, and then he laid down vocals over an instrumental that Earthquake had sent him without ever telling him he was planning on recording with it. Whatever the truth may be, the song Ice Ice Baby was born and would be the center of controversy in the world of hip-hop for years to come. The song famously samples Under Pressure by David Bowie and Queen. Um, Earthquake discovered that sample just because now he has this capability to sample shit, so he's like, fuck. So Quan gave him like boxes of records and was like, do whatever you want with this stuff. And there was a Queen's Greatest Hits album, and that's where he pulled the sample from for, for the original beat. Mm. Um, so, yes, Vanilla Ice, despite what you say, and we will talk about this at length on the next part, but you sampled Queen. You did. Mm-hmm. All right? mm-hmm. You might not yes. have understood what sampling means. Like, but, but this uh, is also... In, in this might be for... I keep fucking saying that. This is for later, but uh, sam- sampling was... It, it was also so new and so people were doing it and we're going to find out as history goes on. Like at this point, there wasn't really even like an established protocol for what do you do when you sample someone else's music? Like right. if you, if you sing a cover, if, if you were like, I'm going to cover under pressure, then you have to credit the writers of under pressure queen and David Bowie. But with sampling it, it literally was such a new musical technique that it didn't even have this way essentially in which people could fucking make money off of it. Yeah. Um, and that's where and that's part of the success of this is going to bring about literally like new laws into right. um into its creation. Right. Yeah, so. it's uh, very similar to our CNC Music uh, Factory episode. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, Tommy Kwan brought in legendary West Coast producer Kyrie to help with Vanilla Ice's album. Kyrie produced two tracks for Ice, Hooked and It's a Party. 
Despite the talent involved with the album, Ice's undeniable skills and stage presence, the co-sign of some of the biggest acts of the day, and a completely original aesthetic, no radio stations were willing to take the risk on a white rapper from Texas. Again, you really gotta understand that rap came from New York at this time. Like, West Coast rap wasn't even taken seriously until, like, 1990. Um, Mm -hmm. So, the idea that it was gonna... I mean, Two Life Crew came out of Miami, but that was a very specific trend you know like to be a rapper from texas was unheard of and like georgia like atlanta houston all these places we think of as big you know fucking um meccas for for rap and and hip-hop that wasn't the case back then it it was still more regional uh underground i mean i think it was a huge it was kind of like the the new really cool thing and yes it was also on mtv uh but it hadn't kind of hit this like massive uber successful right. moment yeah so no one's no one wants to play this record when they see who's on the cover of it uh until a curious dj named daryl J in columbus georgia flipped the single over and played the b-side to play that funky music which was ice ice baby and in a totally cinematic biopic fucking fashion <laughs> the yeah. switchboards lit up with callers demanding to know everything about the artist behind the infectious track like yeah. literally like in slow-mo he's like what if i played yeah. this song and yeah, then it's the- just like magic happens these are two moments that yeah are like kind of crucial to the the music biopic totally you know well like, i mean vanilla are, ice's are... whole fucking life seems to be like they need to make a real biopic about him like i don't know why mm-hmm. no one ever did it would be fucking amazing mm. uh like i mean there's a billion fucking actors that uh, would be amazing uh, for that but, but top like, of the list top of the list is chet hanks so. <laughs> no, they have to play Vanilla Ice, not be Vanilla Ice. Uh, it's a different white boy summer, dude. Uh, while Dallas radio stations still ignored Ice, his song was making waves in other southern regions. Vanilla Ice, along with DJ Deshay and three backup dancers, were on a promotional tour while the song was gaining popularity. DJ Earthquake attributes the song's initial praise to the fact that there just wasn't a music video for it at the time, so most southern hip-hop fans were not aware that Vanilla Ice was white. The Hooked album went on to sell 480,000 copies within two months of its release. And Vanilla Ice said that for the first several years of his career, he never saw any white people in the crowd. Uh, But Mm. by the time he got huge, it would be completely the opposite. But yeah, like that really was a thing because if everyone knew that he was a white guy, then it'd be like, ah, like that's kind of lame. And he's from Texas, like fucking hick, you know, like what's what's this hillbilly doing, even though he's like the furthest thing from it. But uh, Uh, so yeah, people are just gaining like Mm -hmm. interest in the song for the song's sake. I will uh, just, since we've already brought up Rick Astley once, um, I've heard similar stories about, you know, never going to give you up where people, he had such a, a rich baritone that people were like, Oh, that definitely has to be a black dude. Um, yeah. and people were so surprised when they saw the video. Ferguson just... from Clarissa explains it all. <laughs> um, <laughs> it fucking comes I, out. I also, I remember I had, I had like a teacher, um, who I actually thought was pretty cool. And we would like talk about music sometimes. And he was, I remember he said when smells like teen spirit came out, like the way that that riff is, he, thought um it was a boston song (laughs) (laughs) whoa they really took a took a turn (laughs) so sensing the time was right to truly go all in on vanilla ice tommy kwan threw down eight thousand dollars to produce a music video for ice ice baby 
The now iconic music video was set in Miami, but was filmed in the Deep Ellum neighborhood of Dallas. The reason they wanted to give the appearance of Ice being a Miami rapper was because there was no mainstream exposure of the Dallas rap scene, whereas Miami had two live crew. Because Vanilla Ice spent so much time in Florida, it was a natural setting for him to claim as his own. Um, this will be a major point of contention. Uh, yeah, but also later. Yeah, it, it's, it is... But he it was from both. Where... I mean, like I said at the beginning of the episode, he he grew up in Dallas and Dade County, you know, and, and, and Miami, you know, essentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I mean, like he had friends there. He went to the same high school that uh, uh, Uncle Luke went to mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever yeah. his, his name was. But they didn't go to yeah. high school together. And that like everyone is about to tear Vanilla Ice apart. But again, getting ahead of ourselves, we have more than one episode on this guy to come. Um we already talked about his look. He was like the James Dean of rap. Once the music video came out, no one had ever seen anything like this. Uh, and it, it, I mean, it did blow minds. It also made it okay for say like for, for other white kids to get into rap, you know, like they never thought that they themselves could be rappers, even though they love the music because there wasn't anyone to look up to. Here comes vanilla ice coming down the street in a fucking convertible with a fucking gigantic plastic pompadour essentially and brought it to the masses. These, these um, disenfranchised uh, young white youths finally had, (laughs) they finally had representation in the media. Um, and they were like, maybe I could also be like vanilla. It ice. gave him hope. It's important <laughs> to be seen. Um, um, but <laughs> I, f- I feel like, I mean, it's crazy, but in some ways, I mean, there are way more white rappers, um, but it still, you know, feels, I feel like it still feels a bit it's of a, a novelty. Thing. I mean, maybe in the last 10 years, it kind of finally got to a point where it's like, all right, whatever, like you're white. You can rap. I don't know. Yeah. But it, it really had such a strong. It had such a strong hold of being like, "Whoa, white dude rapping! What the hell? Like, stop the press!" Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the interesting thing about the like filming the video in Dallas, but being in Miami again, that will come up time and time again. And he never really repped anywhere. Like, he never talked about being from anywhere. It was never in any of his songs. Uh, he would purposefully derail journalists because he didn't have any interest in being like a hometown hero or the politics that go along with set claiming. So, I mean, people would accuse him of being a poser or like a clout chaser is what they would call nowadays. But it's only because they were unfamiliar with his street cred because he didn't talk about it. It wasn't important to him the way it is now. Like now you have to talk about that stuff uh, in order to get people interested. He would, like, He's like, dude, who cares where I'm from? Like the album is this and listen to the music and check out my dance moves. That's it. So he, now, gets a, uh, he gets shit on a lot for, for no reason. But nowadays, everyone's just from the internet. Yeah, exactly. With his video now on rotation on BET's Rap City, that's interesting, and Florida's music video request station, The Box. Oh, what's in the box? The next step was a full-fledged major record deal. Initially, Ice was caught in the middle of a bidding war between Atlantic Records and Def Jam. He was about to sign to Def Jam with the help of Chuck D when a $1.5 million deal from SBK Records was presented to him. And... Apparently, the story goes, it was really down to the wire. Like, Vanilla Ice was in New York with Chuck D, uh, like, essentially, like, in the offices or in his hotel room waiting to get picked up. And then he gets the call from Tommy Kwan, who's like, do not sign that. I have multiple million 
of reasons for you to not sign that. Mm -hmm. And he understood what that meant. So he's like, not going to Def Jam, went to SBK. Uh, Who knows how much, how different the outcome of this story could have been uh, had he had gone to Def Jam as opposed to SBK. Yeah, I suppose you, it would lead you to think, oh, maybe it would have had more, he would have had more of the cred of Def Jam or. Yeah, well, I mean, he definitely would have been around. There's there's a lot of reasons why it would it definitely would have been different. Uh, We'll talk about that. With the power of a major label behind him, Vanilla Ice quickly went from regional hit to mainstream sensation. Soon, the influential West Coast hip hop radio station KMEL was playing Ice Ice Baby at least once an hour. Ironically, as every major station in the country joined in the frenzy, the one radio station that notoriously boycotted Vanilla Ice was Dallas's KNON FM. SBK Records re-released Hooked as To The Extreme and added a few more tracks as well as some interludes. Gotta have the interludes on your rap album. Yes. <laughs> that, that was such <laughs> that, a thing. I don't know if, if anyone does that anymore, but like, that, no, was, I, that was the move. I think, yeah, I think it was like in a... I don't know. I'm very interested in rap interludes, and I think it started around the late 80s. Yeah, um, I, I we did one on one of my band's albums because we had the same exact conversation. We're like, what happened to that? So my old band, Sons of the Bitch, uh, we released a cassette tape, and there was an interlude with like sound effects and stuff. And like, yeah. I remember it was really awkward recording it, but the whole bit was like, like someone's backstage and there's a knock at the backstage door and you can hear the crowd outside. It's like, Hey, someone, there's a kid here says he's your son. And it's like, yeah. some, like some bullshit. I yeah, mean, it's so stupid. Some of those, I mean like Dr. Dre chronic has some really iconic interludes. Everyone's uh, getting being, shot playing dominoes. Being a, uh, huge outcast fan. I have a soft spot for some of them, even though I know that some of them are kind of bad, but I still, you know, it's just part of, it was part of the process of the CD of just like, playing the entire thing and filling up kinda, space yeah you would, yeah um you know limp biscuit did it with oh, uh yeah. the break stuff where they like smash some glass <laughs> and just up. and i mean yeah i don't know it's just maybe it's knowing your audience it's it's like wow that's so cool it's it it's this really shitty audio of fred it's durst ra- breaking something with a baseball bat and radio <laughs> drama you know, yeah. this is like War of the Worlds, but Vanilla Ice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was also a flood of Ice Ice Baby single releases, one for each audio format, because you have cassettes and then you have vinyl and then you have 45s and then you have fucking like eventually CDs. And like, you know, people are getting all these different players. So you're selling <laughs> so much more this way. It's it's quite crazy. Now, and in an you, effort and to And then maintain- you also like, sorry, like remixes and oh yeah all that instrumental, instrumental versions yeah. vocal versions yeah like you would get an album and it would just have eight versions of the song or yeah. you know a single you get a single on vinyl and it, yeah i had um i had crazy town's butterfly as a single cd yeah and i remember there was a version of it called like acid jazz remix yeah <laughs> it, it, was, like, it was like unlistenable it was insane in an effort to maintain the momentum of his debut album vanilla ice joined mc hammer on tour mc hammer had the number one album in the country which was also the first rap album to reach number one vanilla ice's look at the time was a little more street than one would expect but uh, you know from what we know him as but after seeing the success of MC Hammer and his glitz and glam, Vanilla Ice's management pushed a more colorful aesthetic on him, and it was that look that he would be remembered for the most. And uh, like the the big show, he the literally, act- yeah. MC Hammer said that he like 
came out like like one night they played a show, everything's normal. The next night he comes out and Vanilla Ice is dressed exactly like him. And he's like, "What the mm-hmm. fuck?" <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, yeah. like, it's just crazy. He had the stripes in his hair and fucking the yeah. the super glittery rhinestone, you know, hammer pants and all that stuff. And dude, if you look at MC Hammer footage of his live shows back then, he has like animatronic hammers on stage that are like yeah. constantly yeah. swinging. And there's like forty fucking people on stage all doing something, not like rap where like there's forty people on stage and you don't know who they are and they all have a towel <laughs> over their shoulder. But like <laughs> but like fucking like dancers, a folk and full band, all this shit. So uh, Vanilla Ice, his show had to get bigger and bigger, but he never wanted that. He just wanted to mm-hmm. dance and rap, but it's all being pushed on him. That's what I meant by if he got signed to Def Jam, they wouldn't have done that. MC Hammer wasn't Def Jam style. What we're having is we're having that sort of, oh, this is hot. Like, let's milk the ever-loving shit out of it. You know, let's right. try to make as much money as we possibly can from Ice Ice Baby. Well, also, Charles Copelman, who was the executive of SBK Records, admitted that he was, like, trying to get white kids to love rap, and he used Vanilla Ice as his way of doing that. He mm-hmm. noticed that MC Hammer crowds were a lot more diverse than other rappers, uh, especially like a public enemy or NWA or stuff like that. So he was like, oh, well, like, let's make this white guy who's already a white guy. Let's make him like MC Hammer. And then we'll, like we can't lose. And in right. turn, he created a monster. I created a monster. And Vanilla Ice will probably never forgive him for that. Now, to the surprise of everyone around him, especially MC Hammer, who he was on tour opening for, Vanilla Ice made music history on October or in October of 1990. His album, To the Extreme, and his single, Ice Ice Baby, had reached the Billboard Top 10. And by November 1990, Ice Ice Baby became the first rap song in history to reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100. This accomplishment infuriated the hip-hop legends that came before him, who in many instances played a part in his success. Mm-hmm. That's a fucking major blow. Yeah, so that's the other element we were kind of talking about sort of the the white boy factor in terms of being like oh that's the that's the that's the white dude who you know he can he can hang right yeah he but was the, good for a white guy but he's not supposed to be number fucking one right first. The, the other element is you know sort of like the elvis factor where it's like this has been this like completely established genre of people who are kind of innovating it and in some ways, you could argue the only thing Vanilla Ice is doing to the music is just making it literally white. Yeah. And kind of making it, okay, cool. That's now I can like it. Now again, I'm he's not, not now doing if, anything different. It's just he is white. So he's he just comes being off white. Like yeah. way different. Yeah. But then, you, but then you have, you know, execs who kind of are very aware of that because they're like, if we can tap into this audience, then we can make so much more money. Um, and then it also, it kind of makes it, I mean, this literally happened with rock and roll where it was like, let's, I mean, that was part of the whole Elvis thing and like yeah. a lot of other, um, artists who came after Elvis, because then it does, it does sort of soften the edges. Uh, it makes it less edgy or street urban, whatever it is. And so it becomes a little more like baby food consumable for anyone it's like this and, silly aspect of racism because it's like dude like if you like the music and the style of the music just like it why do you need a white guy to play it in order for you to like it if you already fucking like it 
You know yeah. what I mean? But yeah, actually, he was compared to Elvis a lot, and uh, he was actually on Arsenio Hall, and Arsenio was like, what do you say to people that... He's like, I'm not Elvis Presley, I'm Vanilla Ice. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. oh, one and the same, bud. But, yeah. <laughs> but not, also... Not legacy-wise. But, but yeah, Elvis had like one million more hits than yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Vanilla no Ice shit. did. Um, so. Also, it's interesting to note, like I said, uh, by November, the song had went had gone to number one. The album re-release came out in August. So like, it, this is a very, very quick jump from mm-hmm. you know local act to biggest selling thing on the fucking right. planet. Also, because this is the time to talk about MC Hammer a little bit, is that you, know, you Can't Touch This was like May of 1990. So that's what's interesting about it is it's also, it's not necessarily, he's really like the cherry on top of it, right? Vanilla Ice. Because what I'm saying is that hip hop is this growing underground movement. It's getting more and more popular. You Can't Touch This came out in May of 1990. And that, because a lot of people also really hated on MC Hammer because they said he was making it pop. He was making it silly. It was just about the pants. It wasn't about (laughs) this. It wasn't about being an artist. It wasn't respecting hip hop. And that song was super duper popular. It's kind of that thing where sometimes records get broken like one after the other. It's like, yeah, because the momentum is going. Can't Touch This was like kind of a record breaking for new popular hip hop song. And then months later, it's like, boom, Vanilla Ice is doing it right. It's just like right after, very soon after the success. And it's kind of, it, they, they have that similar style. Well, to, because they, they pushed happened. that on Vanilla Ice. Like they're yeah. like, if you wore shit like that, and being white, you could probably mm-hmm. make a little bit more money. But um, exactly, you know, and again, yeah, it's a super tight time frame. Uh, to the extreme actually became the fastest selling rap album of its time, selling over six million copies in just fourteen weeks, and spending a total of sixteen weeks on top of the Billboard charts. And it's estimated that within four months of the release of To the Extreme, Vanilla Ice had raked in $100 million worth of revenue for the record label, his managers, himself, brought in $100 fucking million in months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's, that is, he is one of the biggest kind of one-hit wonders in that sense, because it's what we're going to find out is how that is it's too fast yeah. right it's yeah. like it's too much too fast too furious uh, he was too fast too furious it was also <laughs> he was like 20 i bet vanilla ice loves the fast and the furious movies yes he definitely looks like a dude who takes really good care of his car um <laughs> but i mean he was 22 years old i think 22 or 23 at this yeah. moment so he's also super young. Yeah, it, so just, it's it's and I mean he was a wild child. You know what I mean? High school dropout, partier, fucking renegade. Like so, you give that. Per, I mean, it's like giving a you know a lit match to a stick of dynamite. It's just like let's see what happens here. Um, also, you know, I, I love this. Like again, when you watch the behind the music, they really make it seem like he was like making strides for some kind of community, and you know, like they literally say like the album and Vanilla Ice has been attributed to diversifying the hip hop audience. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, like, yeah Vanilla yeah. Ice definitely brought in some diversity. Like, like it's so <laughs> weird, like to to talk about it. But I mean, in a way, he fucking did. By 1991, Vanilla Ice was the biggest star on the planet. 
But as we all know, once you reach the peak of the mountain, all you have left is the descent. And that is where we will leave off this time. Next episode will be the descent. <laughs> we, we just yeah. talked about the uh, the ascent. Now we, now we get to go downhill, but you'll have I mean, to wait for that. Because yeah. there's... I mean, for as much crazy stuff I learned about his his past, like pre-Vanilla Ice, like the Rob Van Winkle era, the second Rob Van Winkle era is the major dump. This is the dump. This is, and I mean, that is also sort of the the second episode of this is going to be where some of the weirder stuff happens. The dump happens. And it's also kind of that unfortunate thing where when you see someone get really big, there is this, this strange phenomenon where the public... They kind of want to. They want to see him fail. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you're like, oh my god, that guy who was 23 years old and just made a hundred million dollars didn't know how to all. didn't yes. know how to conduct himself with that. You know, and it's like this. It's this really weird thing that happens. But yes, it will. This is the. This is this his upbringing. But next episode will really be like the dumpy dump. You yeah, know. absolutely. I mean, it's it's going to be uh, hefty. Might even be a three-parter. No, that would be too crazy. <laughs> and also, I can't <laughs> say Van Winkle as many times as I'm going to next week and still have more to go. So <laughs> make sure you guys are following us on Instagram at Culture Dumps. You can uh, send us emails to uh, culturedumps at gmail.com. I'm Ryan Lichten. I'm Parks Miller. Keep on dumping. <laughs>